Welcome to Mind Love, episode 41. Today's episode is all about how curiosity breeds success. Don't just emulate people that you admire and try to do what they did. Because doing what they did is not going to produce the same result for you. It's more important to learn their mentality and the values and characteristics and then apply those values and characteristics to your own circumstances. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. First off, Mind Love is now a Castbox original. Castbox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can get all of your favorite podcasts. It has a super clean layout, and you can create playlists and download episodes to play offline. It's my personal favorite and where I listen to all of my podcasts. Don't worry, you can still listen to Mind Love wherever you get your podcasts, but I hope you'll give Castbox a try. Second, don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and leave a review if you can. Reviews really help to entice more amazing guests. Plus, it helps me grow the show, which ultimately helps me give more value to you guys. Today, we're going to discover exactly what it takes to achieve greatness. We've all looked at other people's lives and assumed, well, I could never do that. Maybe you don't have that creative gene, or your body isn't coordinated enough, or you don't really have much business sense. But the truth is, any of us can do anything, be anything, achieve anything. It just takes choosing to become that and then following through. Today we're talking to someone who has reached the top in so many different aspects of life, I figured he'd be the perfect case study. He came from a modest family, but before he was 30, he accomplished more than most people have in an entire lifetime. By age 19, he'd already traveled the world solo, covering 10,000 miles by bicycle, and lived on a remote island. When I was 19, I'm pretty sure I was just drunk. (laughs) Oh, sad truths. And thanks to the magic of the internet, I found an article from the year 2000 stating that Murray was already worth $40 million by the time he was 28. Cut to me still numbing away the prime years of my life. Good work, Melissa. He's run marathons, studied martial arts, and he's even a world-class composer. Our guest today is Murray Hittery, and I've decided he's my new hero. In this interview, he lays out exactly what it takes to become great in a specific discipline, whichever one is calling to you. We cover everything from how his life growing up contributed to who he is today, to his thought processes and action steps through each accomplishment. So today, three key things we will learn are how being of service puts you in alignment with the universe, how to activate creativity under pressure, and how to become world-class in anything. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning mind love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power so you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of Powerless based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the Miracle Tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Murray Hittery to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Melissa. I've obviously been doing a lot of research on you, and wow, is your life fascinating. You've had so many just phenomenal life experiences, but what intrigues me even more is how much success you've found in all of it. At first glance, your accomplishments seem across the board from tech to music to traveling and even athleticism. What would you say is the common thread in all of them? I think the undercurrent or common denominator pretty much of everything has been leading a life of curiosity and creativity. 
I think that's really been the themes that have driven me the most to explore what's out there and then add my perspective or my two cents through my own creativity to what I see and experience. Well, my goal today is to just get into your brain and figure out what creates a human like you. So let's start from the beginning. Where do you come from? (laughs) What was your life like growing up? I grew up in Brooklyn, not the cool part of Brooklyn where everyone's trying to move to now, where there's artisanal chocolate everywhere. This was the non-artisanal chocolate Brooklyn, the far side of Brooklyn near Coney Island. And it was a very close-knit, still is a very close-knit Jewish community that I grew up in, and in an Orthodox Jewish community where I went to a, a yeshiva Jewish school for the first 12 years of my life and attended synagogue regularly and really all the rituals around Orthodox Judaism was kind of the context in which I grew up. That was kind of the spiritual center as well as just the whole familial and community framework revolved around that. And so for me, there was always something I was yearning for outside of that. And going into my early, early teenage adolescent years, I was very driven by wanting to find out what's out there beyond that, the confines of that community I grew up in. Your first taste of entrepreneurship happened when you were just a teenager. And I love stories like these because I definitely wasn't doing anything that cool when I was a teenager. (laughs) I was much too worried about things that would literally never affect me after high school. So first off, where did you get that drive? And second, what steps did you take to do this? You know, I grew up in very a very entrepreneurial family. My grandfather came to this country um, just about a hundred years ago, actually, early you know nineteen hundreds, and uh, he came with nothing. And he went to Ellis Island by ship from Aleppo, Syria. That's where he was originally from. And he was a teenager, and he built himself on the streets of the Lower East Side, living in tenements. That classic immigrant story. And he peddled tablecloths and all kinds of things on the streets to get by. And eventually, he built a business where he would go overseas and import clothing and textiles to the United States and was one of the first to do that. He was traveling to China in like the 30s, just an unbelievable time. And it would take him, you know, like months to just get there and, and come back. He'd be away for six months at a time. Today, we take it for granted. You can fly to the other side of the world in a matter of hours. So he was an entrepreneur who built the family business, which then my father and uncles and cousins continued to work in. So I grew up in that very entrepreneurial mindset. And when I was a teenager, I wanted to earn some extra money. And, and so I would buy clothing wholesale and show up at these flea markets, which would take place on pretty much any given Sunday in Queens and the Bronx and Brooklyn and you know all over, they'd move around. And I'd set up a table. And I would just put my goods on display and could be snowsuits for the winter for kids or shorts and T-shirts or things like that. And that's where I pretty much built my negotiating and business chops was at those flea markets. Because if you can negotiate with, you know, a mother of five trying to keep her kids warm for winter and buy snowsuits and jackets and clothing, you can pretty much negotiate with anyone. So. So that's that's where I, you know, and I was able to make some extra money as a, you know, as a as a teenager. And it was it just was really fulfilling and very kind of self-motivating. That's so cool and so inspiring. I think now with the opportunities that the Internet's created and the ability to see what other people are doing, we do see young people taking these business initiatives more often. But when you were growing up, that was kind of uncanny. And continuing your theme of bold choices as a young person, after graduating high school, you took a really epic trip across the world. Tell us about that trip. I finished high school. And like I said earlier, the first thing I wanted to do was just go out and explore the world. There was so much I wanted to see and touch and feel and experience. And I did just that. I packed a bag and I traveled for the better part of a year. Really, the only driving force of it was how far can I get from where I grew up? You know, it was just kind of that drive to just get out. And so I looked at the globe, one of those actual physical globes that you get when you're like a kid. And it was on my desk. And I looked at what's the furthest place I can go from New York. 
And on the other side of the world was the South Pacific and Australia and New Zealand and all these amazing, what seemed very exotic countries to me at the time. And so I went and booked a flight and went across the other side of the world. Once you got there, how did you make your way from country to country? Once I got there, I realized that the best way, assuming you have the time, which I did, to see a country and to experience a culture is by bicycle. A car or a train are efficient, but they're a little too fast. Very rarely are you going to be tempted to pull over if you see something interesting. You're just going too fast. Of course, walking would be cool, but that's just too slow. Then you really need a lot of time. So somewhere between walking and driving was what I was looking for as the sweet spot of making progress, but being able to really soak it all in. And I realized that a bicycle was the optimal speed, doing anywhere from, you know, 12 to 20 miles an hour, kind of cruising along is the right speed to take things in and be able to just pull over at any point. And I did that on my own. So I would have the freedom and flexibility to go wherever I wanted and wherever the wind pushed me. And so that's what I did. And it ended up being over 10,000 miles in countless countries. That's insane. You literally biked 10,000 miles in countries where you didn't speak the language. You just don't hear of a lot of teenagers having the balls to do something like that. And this was before we had cell phones and email and all that at our fingertips in terms of communication, or certainly there was no Google at the time. I couldn't search or Yelp like the nearest hostel or camping ground or cool restaurant. Everything was just, you discover it as you go. I had those little lonely planet book guides that would give me some direction, but so much of it was off the beaten path of the off the beaten path. And it was just pure discovery. And it forces you, especially when you travel alone, forces you to connect with the locals and to really talk to them and communicate with them and get their advice and see what they're about. You know, when you travel with friends, it's super fun, but you end up mostly communicating with them and sharing your humor with them. And you're not as integrated with the local community as you could be if you were traveling alone. That's my experience of it. You're so right. When you travel with friends, you're never truly out of your comfort zone. Even if you are doing activities outside of your comfort zone, you still have those people or that person that's kind of like a safety blanket along for your trip, which is fine. We are creatures of comfort, so it's totally understandable. But staying in our comfort zones and avoiding risks doesn't really do much to help us grow as people. The more risks we take, we not only get to see what we can handle, but we even start to be able to handle more. Like it builds our endurance for life challenges. Were there any moments of that trip that especially stand out as life-defining? Part of this epic trip, which really was kind of my coming of age, if you will, at 18 years old, of defining who I was and breaking away from where I came from to forge what I could become and really to explore what was I made out of, right? So pushing myself physically to then see emotionally what my composition was. And like I said, I kind of went to the other side of the world. One of the stops on my flight itinerary was uh, the islands of Fiji. And what did I know? I thought it was just some nice beaches. I'd sit there for a week or two and enjoy the beach and keep moving. But little did I know I'd have the journey of a lifetime waiting for me at the other end. I get to the island and I'm on a bus. I've imagined these like rickety old buses, the windows down, dust roads, the dust flying in through the window. And you're just looking at the countryside. And I was going from one town to another and I get a tap on the shoulder. And I turn around and this beautiful, big, smiling Fijian man, local man, engages a conversation with me. And his name was Waisake. He asked me what my name was and where I was from. And when I told him I was from New York, he just beamed and lit up. He'd always wanted to go there and dreams of going to the United States. And we struck up this wonderful conversation for the duration of the bus ride. And he said, you really should go to the village that I grew up in. So I said, well, I would love to. But I remember reading that some of these villages are pretty much off limits to tourists because there's just no facilities there and they don't encourage you to go visit there. So I mentioned that to him and he just kind of gave me that look like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And he writes this letter in Fijian, which I did not understand. And he says, when you get there, give this to them. And again, there was no Google Translate to see what he wrote. So for all I knew, who knows what he wrote. When we get to the next town, he takes me to the fishing port 
And he directs me to this boat where the father and two sons, he gave him instructions of where to take me. They didn't speak much English, but he gave him instructions in Fijian and, and then he put me on the boat. I gave him what probably was a couple dollars to take me there. So I figured, okay, and this is about a 20-foot boat with a little outboard motor and kind of one little covering in this little room. And I figured, okay, maybe an hour or two, we'll get there. Well, that two hours turned into four hours and then six hours and eight hours, and we're still in the open sea. Oh, my gosh. All I could think of is how hangry I would be. Did you bring food? Did you have anything to eat? We'd stop every now and then just down the middle of the ocean, and these two teenagers would dive into the open sea with spears, and they would go spearfishing for food because I was wondering, like, what are we going to eat? There's nothing on this little boat. And that's what we did. And so they would spearfish these little tropical fish, which, by the way, if you've ever tried to do it, it's the most impossible task because they actually asked me to try. And if I was left to my own devices, I absolutely would have starved to death. But they were able to kind of spear, not with a spear gun, but like just poking it. It's just such a difficult task. So we'd boil these fish. We'd, you know, have some rice. And that was what we ate. And I was like, when are we going to get to this destination, to this village? Well, two days later, okay, it's actually two nights and the third day later, we arrive at this (laughs) remote island. Turns out that I was taken to the most remote, furthest island from the mainland in Fiji. Fiji is about an archipelago of about 300 islands. And so I ended up in this far out remote island where there was just this one village. And then they dropped me off and then the boat left. Now I get on this beach and I don't see anyone. I don't see anything. It's just trees and brush. And they drive away. I walk up on the beach, put my bag down. I'm looking around. And a couple minutes later, out of the trees, these three men appear, looking at me quizzically, like, what is this guy doing here? I quickly scramble for the letter that Waisake on the bus, my new friend, gave me. And I present the letter to them. Again, I don't know what the letter says. They read the letter and they smile. They go, ah, Waisake sent you. And they embrace me. They bring me in through the trees. And a few minute walk, there's a clearing And I see this village of 143 people living traditionally. There's no electricity. There's no modern sanitation or anything like that. They're living the way they've lived there for how many hundreds and hundreds of years. And I was invited to join them. And I spent the better part of four months living off the land with them, farming in the morning, uh, planting, harvesting, when one of the members of their community needed a new home. They would all come together and build a home for this family. It was a true, beautiful community that they all had shared and supported each other and bartered with other villages and other islands. And that's how they subsisted. And I got to really see that firsthand, live that. And it was just such a wonderful lesson of human being and how other people halfway around the world lived. (laughs) I have so many questions. You're just this teenager dropped on an island of Fijians. It must have been so strange just being this out-of-place character. How did you decide to stay? Did you have to have a talk with someone to join the community? And what were the biggest lessons you learned while you were there? It was kind of funny. They put me in the care of this one family just to kind of look after me. And they really, they didn't even ask how long I was going to stay. They just was like, stay as long as you want. <laughs> and, and I said, okay, I will. And I didn't know how long I was going to stay either. Now, it was also limited by the fact that I couldn't actually get off the island. So that was an issue. <laughs> but but uh, some of the things I learned were you know, how people can live together and really look after one another, how they balance the masculine and feminine roles, because there were clear division of responsibilities that they had. They also would come together socially just about every night. So they'd work very hard during the early morning, take a break when the heat was at its maximum in the midday, work again in the late afternoon. And then in the evening, they'd all come together in kind of the community hut and they'd sit in a circle and they'd share stories. And some of the men in particular, you know, a lot of them would go off and work on fishing vessels for months out at sea. So they would come back to the village after being gone at sea for many months and then they would share their stories from their travels. 
and just a lot of storytelling, but all ritualized in this kind of community setting. First of all, that's straight out of a movie. (laughs) You had more life experience before you were 20 than a lot of people have in their entire lives. And it wasn't long after this trip that you basically hit a gold mine in the tech world. How did you go from this wandering teenage nomad to internet mogul in just a few years? I finished that trip. I was already playing music when I was very young. I started playing music when I was five, six years old. And I knew that was going to be a big part of my life. And so I actually went to university. At that time, I was only 19 years old. I studied classical composition. And when I graduated, I was like, okay, well, it's cool that I did this and I'm passionate about it, but how am I going to make any money in classical music? And a lot of people with my kind of degree, they would go into writing jingles for commercials or TV and stuff like that, which at the time really didn't float my boat. That was not what I wanted to do. And I would actually have conversations with some of these guys and they would tell me, it's cool, you get good money in it. And I'd ask them, well, okay, and in addition to these projects, like when did you write your first symphony as an example, like the music you wanted to write? And they looked at me like I had 12 heads and they were like, there's rarely an opportunity for that because you're always on deadline. You're always working on the next project. And I really took that to heart and I said, well, that's just not for me. I really want to work on the music and write the music I want to write. So I decided then to separate out the music and having to make money from the music. But that left me in a quandary because I was like, well, how am I going to pay the bills and lead the life I want to lead? So I was sharing this frustration with my older brother, Jack, and he was really into tech our whole lives growing up. And so he said, have you heard of this thing called the Internet? Now, you got to remember, this is 1994, when most people had not heard of the Internet. And I said, well, I kind of heard of it. Remind me what it is. And so he and I get together and he shows me and we start talking about it and We looked at each other like, this is just so exciting, this ability to connect people from all over the world. And it was just so new. And you got to remember, this is before Google and before any of that had ever even surfaced or was even dreamed of. And so we just jumped in like head first. And we were just so excited about it, not knowing if it was going to make money or not make money. We just wanted to be a part of it because it seemed like such a revolution that was about to take place. And it turns out that was indeed the case. So starting it in 94, and then it just grew in 95, 96, obviously. And we built one of the first tech companies in the internet space out of New York. And we were able to take that public in 1998, just a few years later. And it was kind of the ride of our lives, raising venture capital at 22, 23 years old, and then taking the company public eventually in 1998 in what was like one of the record-setting IPOs in that heyday of the internet, that first web 1.0 world. So that was pretty radical, you know, taking the company public at 27 years old. And just that idea that just two generations earlier, my grandfather had come to this country as an immigrant without a penny in his pocket as a teenager, peddled on the streets of the Lower East Side and built a family business, which now his two grandsons are now taking a company public on the NASDAQ exchange. That's just cool to think about the only in America, that American dream kind of story. So Um, It was really nice to be part of that lineage and part of that tradition. When we come back, we're going to learn the mindset it took to achieve success in so many areas and Murray's step-by-step action plan to making his dreams a reality. It feels better to make someone else happy than do something for yourself that makes you happy. And if this is your first time giving your mind a little love, I have a few goodies for you. First, don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And second, sign up for the Morning Mind Love. Think of it like a weekday oracle from your highest self to help you start each day with a positive focus. Plus, you'll get two gifts absolutely free, a 30-minute binaural meditation and 30 days of journaling prompts to help you remember who you truly are. So join over 9,000 people and go to mindlove.com to sign up or text the word MORNING to 33777. Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do, and there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think the Story's About You. The story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. 
So she goes on a mission to find out the truth. And as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Brittany's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything, like this dark cloud is over my day and I look to the past and the future and everything feels tainted like this is how it's always been. Those types of days used to last months and now they're pretty few and far between and they rarely last more than a few hours, but it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than, but if we keep them bottled up, The shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash MindLove. So what do you attribute that success to? What kind of mindset did you have to have in order to succeed in so many areas like you did? Well, I think in the beginning, when you're 22, starting a company, which is what I was, you're quite naive in the sense that we had full belief that we were going to make it. There was no notion that one in 10 startups make it and nine out of 10 fail. That wasn't even a statistic that was on my radar. And if it was, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, those other nine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, like... Like there was no notion that failure was an option. It was just a matter of how do we figure this out? We're in this maze and we just got to figure out the path to where the cheese is. That's what it is. It's just that the cheese is there. How do we figure out how to get through this maze to it? And we just got to keep trying different directions till we figure it out. And just that relentless persistence. We just didn't give up no matter what. And certainly there are lots of bumps in the road, obviously, like there always are in any journey. We just kept pushing, pushing, pushing till we did it. Where do you think that relentless persistence comes from? And how do you keep it up without letting fear and doubt take over? It's all about getting stuff done. That's just a big part of our family. It's less talk and more action. And I grew up in that environment. My parents are both people of action in philanthropy and community service and in business, which I think is a good lesson to learn young. And I think also is back to that notion of survival. Like I felt like if this didn't work, I would have to go back to do things I just wasn't passionate about doing. And that just felt like it was a threat to my spirit. It's one thing to be threatened physically. It's another thing to be threatened spiritually. It was a real threat to my spirit in that way. And that was a real driver for me. You make a really good point about getting stuff done. I found that action is the best way to get over any doubts you might have because you can research something for years and never get started. But the moment you do start, you start to build momentum and it's addicting. And you're going to learn more by doing and making mistakes and redoing than if you try to get it perfect the first time. Because let's face it, you're never going to get it perfect the first time. No matter how much research you do to try to prepare, things are never going to go exactly as expected, which is also why it's so important to figure out what's driving you. That actually brings me to my next question from a quote that I found from you. You said, in today's world, the question, what does it really mean to be of service has never been more important or necessary to ask. What do you mean by that? 
For me, being of service is one of the two core values that I have in terms of how I architect my life. Being of service and leading a life of curiosity and learning is the other. Being of service is so important because I remember reading a book by the Dalai Lama and he said something so simple and so profound, which was, if you want to be happy, make other people happy. And, you know, it was so simple, but I was like, wow, that really makes sense. And when you apply that and you discover for yourself the truth of that, then it's undeniable, right? It feels better to make someone else happy than do something for yourself that makes you happy, whatever it might be. It could be the simplest thing. Something about that, our social construct as human beings, right? We're social creatures, we're social animals. And so getting into relationship with others in that capacity is incredibly rewarding. There is real truth to the more you give, the more you get. And you can spin it however you like, but it just is the way it is. And so, you know, I come back to the core belief that if I'm interested in making the world a better place, which I am, and I think most people are, then how do you go about that? Do you just volunteer for some organization? Well, that's one way. But I think there's a step before that. The step before that for me is how do I make myself a better person? And if I can make myself a better person, then every interaction that I'm showing up in, whether it's at an organization I'm volunteering for or whether it's at the local Starbucks, there's interactions all day, every day. And each one of those, the quality of those interactions will ultimately ripple out and determine the world we live in. And so it's this domino effect that takes place. So if all of us work on ourselves, right, which at, at first seems, oh, well, that still seems a little selfish. But no, we must be selfish first to grow, work on ourselves so that when we show up in all capacities, with our friends, with our families, in our workplace, with strangers, anywhere, that we're showing up as our best selves because that will domino out, right? That person who you're talking to at Starbucks, that interaction, the energy of that exchange will then transfer to the next person they talk to and so on and so on. So there's just real truth to that. So you start with ourselves and it ripples out and that's what being of service really is about, starting with yourself and then being like, what am I uniquely positioned to contribute based on my talents, my skills, my interest, all these different elements. For me, it's music now. And that's how I choose to make a difference in the world. Yeah, that's so true. You can't pour from an empty cup. Right. So you have to fill your own cup first. And then what are you filling it with, right? Is it filled with unresolved issues from your childhood? Is it filled with all kinds of crazy baggage and worldviews and narratives that are not of service and not helpful? Because we're certainly dishing that out. We're certainly pouring that out all over the place. Instead of spilling that all over, what if we really worked on and filled ourselves up with just tremendous power and empowerment and love and goodness in our own unique, special way of communicating it? And we each have that special gift of communicating that with our own gifts. You're right. We have so much more control than we think we do. I find self-development so intriguing because we really are limitless. I remember hearing the phrase mind over matter when I was about 11 years old. And being that young, I felt like I found this hack to life. I remember telling anyone who would listen, guys, if you just put your mind to something, you can change and control anything. Then, of course, life happened and I got knocked down a few times, failed at a few things, and I forgot that for about a decade. Do you remember what first introduced you to self-development when you realized, wow, I can just become better than who I am right now? It just takes choice and then action. It was a couple of things. I, I remember at about 16 years old, there were a couple of books I read. One was Way of the Peaceful Warrior by Dan Millman. I was really into martial arts as a kid, and I felt that that was a wonderful path to bridge the physical and the spiritual, if approached the right way. And so the way of the peaceful warrior kind of comes from that, right? It's, it's about that spiritual journey that this young person goes on. And then Siddhartha was a book I read 
on the heels of that. Also one of the first books I read about that spiritual hero's journey, of course, by Herman Hesse, which won the Nobel Prize in the 50s. And then from there, the floodgates opened. I got into so many different areas of Eastern philosophy, and in particular studying Zen Buddhism, going to Zen monasteries and spending a lot of time in Zen monasteries and just absorbing that tradition. Wait, you just spent time in a Zen monastery? I have oddly heard more than one person say this, but what I can't get around is, how does that even happen? That's a great question. For me, I mean, I'm sure it happens differently for everyone who does that. But for me, it happened because I took probably about four months and went to Japan, initially because of martial arts. This was kind of another large trip that I took during my college years. And so I went to Japan under the excuse of it, right, for my parents and for school was there was an exchange program, but I barely went to the class of the exchange program in Tokyo. And I escaped to the countryside where about a two and a half hour train ride was the original dojo or school of Aikido, the Japanese martial art of Aikido. And I just would stay there in this dojo and sleep on the mats of the school of the dojo and wake up at five in the morning, rake leaves and study there. And then one day I heard the sound of this flute and I was like, that's the most beautiful sound like I've ever heard. And I find out what it is, and it was the traditional Japanese flute called the shakuhachi. I researched it, found one of the top makers in Japan, bought one, and I couldn't get a sound out of it. And it's known that sometimes it takes six months to just be able to produce a sound out of this bamboo flute. And I came back to New York, and I found a teacher of this shakuhachi bamboo flute. I had ended up studying with him for what ended up being many, many, many years. And it turns out that this Japanese flute was the instrument used by the Zen monks for hundreds of years. And they composed repertoire specifically for musical meditation. The repertoire is just the most stunning, beautiful music. And it's like a training for breathing through music. And it's all prescribed, every note, when to breathe, all of that. So I would train with him, and then we would go on these excursions to a Zen monastery. It's actually in upstate New York called Daibozatsu Zendo. And that's where I would stay, and I went there countless times. And it's like suddenly beaming yourself, transporting yourself to Japan. Like you can't believe this building is even up a few hours away from New York City. Uh, But it was, and that's in addition to the monasteries I stayed at in Japan itself. But that's how I came to it. And took on the Zen meditation, the walking meditation, sitting meditation, all of it. Where did you get your sense of curiosity and willingness to take these big chances in life? To a certain extent, I give my mom credit because as a mother, she took such care and such deliberate intention to give her kids different experiences. Everything from starting to play an instrument when I was five years old. A lot of people didn't do that where I grew up back then. Today, maybe it's more common, but back then it was not really commonly done. Few and far between kids at that age would play instruments. But that was something all of my siblings, all five of us did. She took us to museums. She took us to opera. She took us to just incredible cultural experiences. When I was a young, young teenager, she would allow me to go on rock climbing trips and canoe trips and, you know, all these unique experiences So she was very open to offering those to me. And of course, I took to it. And then that just kind of fed on itself. So I really was very much about taking on experiences. And my mom was a big part of driving that. In an effort, I think she wanted to develop well-rounded kit that had a lot of experiences and a well-rounded education. That was her goal. So that's kind of where it started. And maybe it's just part of my genetic makeup or spiritual makeup, but I just have such a craving to learn and explore pretty much everything. Nothing is a boring topic for me. It's easy to hear that and think, well, my mom didn't do that. It's too late now. I'm screwed. But life is long. Yeah, it's short in some regards, but it's also long. We have this mentality that your peak experiences happen when you're young and it's a decline from there. But as big and as grand as I thought I was living in my 20s, now that I'm in my 30s, I feel like I just started understanding life. 
Life is beginning for me, especially now that I've found something I'm passionate about. And I'm only three years into my 30s. What is it going to feel like when I'm 40? Honestly, I'm only excited. But that excitement comes from recognizing that I have control over who I want to be, what I want to become, what I want to experience. I take classes all the time. I'm always trying to learn. And lucky for us, we now have so much information and ways to acquire knowledge right at our fingertips. We're not limited by geography anymore. That's not to say it's a replacement for in-person activities or physical collaboration, but it's a damn good addition. And every single time we subject ourselves to something new, in a way, we become a new person. Our cells are constantly regenerating. Our brains are constantly forming new connections. The body replaces itself with largely a new set of cells every 7 to 10 years, and some of our most important body parts are revamped even faster. The lining of our stomach is renewed every few days. Even our bones are refreshed once a decade. The point is, we have the ability through intention and action to become whoever we want to be, regardless of our circumstances. What's really fascinating to me is your balance between left and right brain. You've got this analytical, business-oriented mindset, but you're also creative and artistic with photography and music composition. How do you switch gears? Say you're on a deadline and you need to quickly get into your creative brain to come up with something tomorrow. What are your tips to boost creativity? The answer is counterintuitive. I've come to learn about myself that if I'm in that position, I need to create space. As opposed to filling it with as much data as I can and like researching things. Now, of course, you need a certain amount of data. You need a certain amount of information. But then I need to take a step back. Then that looks a few different ways. One way it looks like is sitting at the piano and just losing myself in music and seeing what comes from that. Another approach I take is going for a hike by myself and just getting into nature, getting into the mountains, or even just if I'm in New York City, taking a walk through the streets without any direction and just seeing what comes to me. Because the stimulus of that, triggering the brain in other ways, for me, it proves to be very powerful in its ability to connect dots in unusual ways. So you could be walking through the street and you see some sign on a storefront and all of a sudden you come up with an idea. I also get Tremendous ideas when I just go to the theater. If I go to a concert, again, not a rock concert, but something more where I can really collect my thoughts, like a classical concert or you know something like that, where I just lose myself as an audience member, and suddenly I just get a flood of ideas comes in. So those are a few ways that I do it. And you know, I actually had a grand piano in my office throughout all the years of my tech company. And that's how I would end my day every single day was sitting at the piano after a long 12-hour-plus startup day. And i just sit at the piano before I went home. And I would just play for a little bit, just improvise and just de-stress. And that was the earliest days of what I'm doing now. That's really where it comes from. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive at first. But when you think about it, you have to create space to make room for something new. I've found that that's not only true with ideas, but with anything, new friends, new opportunities. A little over a year ago, I was in this position where I had already made a bunch of life changes, but there were still a few things I was hanging on to. A job that I hated, some bad habits, toxic friendships. When I finally made the decision to let some of those things go, clear my energy sphere, I swear life just opened up to me. And now I'm in this position where I am so grateful that I made those initial sacrifices. And all I can think of is what took me so long. What advice do you have for those who are still trying to figure it out, figure out where their passion coincides with their skills and what value they want to bring into this world? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's such a personal one for so many people. The first thing I would advise is actually something not to do. Don't just emulate people that you admire and try to do what they did. Because as much as we admire the Steve Jobses of the world and we read their biographies, and that's all helpful and we should do that, doing what they did is not going to produce the same result for you. It's important to know that. It's more important to learn kind of their mentality and the values and characteristics 
and then apply those values and characteristics to your own circumstances, but not try to recreate the circumstances. Having said that, then what I would encourage is really those core questions around what really drives you. And you can even put the passion word aside because a lot of people are like, I don't know, I'm not really passionate about anything. And that's fine. It's not so much what you're passionate about. It's more about what are you just so intensely curious about is a better question, I think. Like, what are you just fascinated with? Like, just curious about. And it could be anything that you find interesting. Then it's helpful to go explore different things, different classes, different lectures, different experiences to see, to gauge where does your curiosity get sparked? Now, if we're always doing the same things, if our routine is constant and we go through our motion throughout the day and it's typical day to day, you're not going to be in situations that are going to spark your curiosity as much. So you have to go outside the comfort zone of the experiences and situations that you're in. It could be like looking in your local community and saying, what kind of crazy lecture is happening in the local university? Something I would just never go to. And just go. It's just, you know, go for an hour. Every university has classes and lectures that are free to the public. You can even go audit and sit in on part of an ongoing course without having to officially take the course. Just see, hey, is physics interesting to me? Is biology interesting to me? Is computer tech interesting to me? There's so many different things. Sociology, anthropology, whatever it might be, or things that are more pragmatic and practical, like various kinds of therapy or meditation or yoga, you know, whatever it is that piques your interest. But you got to try it. You got to put yourself in the room and get on the field trying different things to see if it sparks. Worst case, you heard something interesting, you learn something, and you move on. Let's talk about what you're doing now. You could have just taken your millions and retired and lived lavishly for the rest of your life, but you didn't. After, I don't know how many, three or four companies, which was an absolute blast to build and had its ups and downs, I always knew I'd go back to what my original interest was, which was music. I studied to be a classical composer. I had written throughout the years for others, but I always wanted to go back to my music full time. I didn't know exactly what that was going to look like, but I finally just drew a line in the sand. This was now about four or five years ago, and I said it's time to do it because it's never the right time to do anything. If you actually want to make a change in your life, there's always an excuse of, oh, well, I think I need to wait three months or six months, or maybe I'll do it next year because I got to finish this thing. And I don't know, I'm a little pressured here. Maybe I need to save some more money. Or There's always these excuses that are, by the way, totally reasonable. And anyone that you sit with to explain it, friend, family, advisor, mentor, will like shake their head and be like, yep, I, yep, that's totally reasonable. <laughs> but that's not the point. The point is not to be totally reasonable. The point is to really shake it up so that you can lead an extraordinary life. And to lead an extraordinary life, sometimes you've got to go outside the box of logic and reasonability and just see what happens and kind of throw it out there. So for me, I drew the line in the sand and I said, I'm going to go to my music full time. And you know, I had to transition business stuff, of course, and be responsible with my commitments. So it's not about not being responsible with your commitments, but you can do that and be responsible with your commitments and start making a transition, kind of like a cross fade, if you will. If you phase out one area, you phase in another area. It doesn't have to be a complete line that you stop and start. You can fade in and fade out of things. So that's the approach I took. So say you've made that decision to transition to really following your dream. You've completed the phase out of what you've been doing, what's been making you money. What's the first step to really making your dream a reality? For me, I said, if I'm going to do this, I need to really immerse myself in the music and figure out how it's going to show up. What is that going to look like? And I decided to move from New York to Los Angeles as the first step, because for me, initially, it's all about distraction management. If you're going to do something new and really go for it, you have to manage all the distractions that can pull you away from that. That's like the first step especially if you're doing other things. So me being in New York with the social network, friends, family, business ventures, there was a lot pulling my time, requiring and requesting my time that would be hard to say no to. So I said, I have to remove myself from that environment. 
So I relocated myself. I sold my place that I had for 12 years and I moved to the other side of the country. That was the first step. And then I said, well, now I have to actually work on my music. And if I'm going to do this in a world-class way, I have to really retrain myself. So I actually got a full-time piano coach. Now you'd say, what what do you mean? A full-time piano coach? I said, yeah. So I looked at like professional athletes. And I said, look at the best athletes in the world, Roger Federer, you name it, any sport. They all have full-time coaches. Now, what do they need a full-time coach for if they're the best in the world? Well, that's precisely why they're the best in the world, right? They're always looking to improve their game in some way. They're always looking for an edge. They're always looking for a new technique, a new approach. And so I said, why shouldn't musicians be treated the same way? While we're not physical athletes, we are musical athletes. And there is a tremendous physicality to it as well. So I actually ended up getting a full-time coach move into my home, into my guest bedroom. And we trained hours and hours every night. And I spent a year doing that before I even chose to do my first concert. So that what I put out there was of the caliber that I felt was what I wanted to do. It's so easy to assume that People with remarkable talent were just born that way. We think, well, yeah, Serena Williams can do that, but there's no way someone like me could do that. When we think that way, though, it's an excuse. It's really just letting ourselves off the hook from doing something big with our lives. When you dig deeper, read the autobiographies of these top people, ask them questions, listen to their interviews, the truth is you can be the best in the world. You just have to work really freaking hard to get there. It takes grit and perseverance and passion. So after that full year of practicing hours a day, how did you take it from something you dreamed up in your living room to hundreds of performances a year all over the country? The first experience, Melissa, was nothing more than inviting 30 to 40 people over, some friends and friends of friends, and playing and giving them what was the first quote-unquote mind travel. And that became the name of this project and this initiative. And I called it that because I was interested in taking people on this musical journey, which really was what I was doing for myself, all those startup late nights at home or in the office. And it was like, how do I present this to people? And what I wanted to present was really an experience that people could have. And it was experience that took place in the mind It was a journey, it was a story that I would tell, albeit kind of a subconscious storytelling, but it was something that they could go on their own journey with and hopefully relate to. I didn't know what the reaction would be, but I took them through it. And then I had a friend with a video camera in the next room interview people for a minute, one at a time, about the experience. And the next day, I watched Melissa about 15 of these, and I was just moved emotionally. I was moved by how much they were moved. There's people who were tearing on the video recounting their experience that they had just had. So I thought, wow, maybe people really, I didn't know they would have this deep of a reaction to it, but okay, let's do another one. And then another one, and then another one. And and now I do close to 100 concerts a year traveling around the world with this experience called Mind Travel. So for (sighs) listeners who are interested in possibly experiencing mind travel, where can they find you online? We make it really easy. Just go to mindtravel.com. And of course, we're also on Instagram at Murray Hittery. But on the website, we have all the events coming up coast to coast. And the best way to experience it really is to try to get yourself to a live event versus trying to find some download or video. Those do exist, but I really would advise coming and having a physical, in-person, live experience. And then you can use the recordings afterwards to kind of tap back into that. But there's nothing quite like doing it live, whether it's on the beach in Santa Monica here in Los Angeles, but we do it outdoors. The whole audience gets wireless headphones. And when I play, unless you have the headphones on, it's totally silent to the outside world. You can only hear the music, the piano through the headphones. And that creates this very deep, intimate connection. You put headphones on, you go into this internal world. But then you're able to look around and you see so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people also having that intimate individual experience and you're having it collectively in this togetherness. They're not just in their seats like in a theater. They can walk around the beach. In New York, we've done it at Central Park where you're walking around the grass and you have this beautiful freedom of movement. 
And the music is like this soundtrack and holds the space for that. So, you know, freedom is at the core of these experiences, which is, again, why I recommend doing it in person. And then we've developed other formats of it, which people are loving. One of them is called the Mind Travel Silent Hike. So I love being in nature, just going and hiking on my own to clear my head and, and have ideas. But I also love hiking with other people. But sometimes I don't like like talking so much to people for a two-hour hike. So I'm like, I want to hike with you, but I don't want to have to feel like I have to talk the whole time. Is that terrible? Anyway, so, so I developed this experience called the silent hike where we meet at the bottom as a group. We all put the headphones on. I then play a recording of the music and we hike to the top. Some of the hikes are quite intense. We hike to the top in silence, listening to the music. And that creates this walking meditation in a modern context. So it's the same walking meditation I did in Zen monasteries, walking kind of in circles around the monastery. That's what they do it every morning. But now in a modern context with technology that actually connects us as opposed to distracts us, these wireless headphones and everyone's united through this music, listening to the same thing at the same time, hiking in unison in lockstep up this mountain. And then when we get to the top and we've all accomplished this and had this experience together in silence, in quietude, we then turn to one another and share our experience and connect with our language to put it to that experience. And the bonding and the connection is just profound. We did it in New York, actually, where there's no mountains. We took people across the Brooklyn Bridge. We took people across the Williamsburg Bridge. And you're walking through the streets of New York where there's traffic around you and noise and honking and bicyclists and, and pedestrians walking and cars and you're in your own world of the music, but you're walking, by the way, not with a few people, 200 people walking through the streets with headphones on in silence, listening to music, having this objective experience of the urban environment or of the natural environment. We've done it in Aspen in the mountains, in the hills of Los Angeles, where there's you know, beautiful nature trails. We're all pretty familiar with the benefits of meditation, but why is it that this type of walking meditation, coupled with the beautiful music, so profound? It's about really transporting people and giving people these expansive experiences that hopefully can translate. The whole idea is not to just do it for that hour or two, but that they take something away with them. Those true lessons of music. What does rhythm feel like in their lives? Not just in the music or during that experience, but what does rhythm feel like for you in your everyday life? What is your rhythm? Are you running too fast? Do you have the right pace? What is your rhythm? And how does it fluctuate throughout the day and throughout the week and throughout the year? And what is your harmony? What is your melody? What do, what do you sound like? Right? What voice are you putting out there? And how do you harmonize with those around you, with not only people, but with what you're doing? Are you in congruence? Are you in consonance? Or are you in dissonance? These are musical terms, but they're life terms. And so that's how I think about my life is through metaphor of music, right? Like music is always a massive metaphor and a teacher for me in every single way. And every time I play, I learn something new. I was lucky enough to experience your underwater mind travel, and it was mind-blowing. I brought my friend Kristen, and she said, that was amazing, but I think it might have ruined regular swimming for me. I'm always going to go underwater and expect music. Right, right. Yeah, we didn't even talk about that one. That one was insane. We did the largest live underwater concert ever done on the planet. I mean, we had over 200 people floating and then swimming together, again, in silence, no speaking, but just being together in this incredible experience as I played live to these underwater speakers in, in this massive Olympic pool, which is like a lake. I mean, it was just insane. You can find easy access to the links Murray mentioned at mindlove.com slash 041. If you happen to be in one of the areas where Murray performs, I highly suggest that you try to get to one of these events. It was so cool. As I've said, I've been to the underwater one, but I plan to go to one of the silent meditations on the beach in Santa Monica in the next few weeks, so maybe I'll see some of you there. If you don't live in the area, don't be discouraged. Try to reenact something like this on your own. 
there are so many really awesome meditation apps that have powerful meditation music. I really love Insight Timer or Calm. It's one thing to meditate sitting down. That's so, so beneficial for you. But walking meditations can be really beneficial also. It's a great practice to actually be out in the world, interacting with life, exploring the beauty of the universe while still keeping that inner tranquil calm. Again, the links in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 041. If you have a moment, please leave a review on iTunes or Google Podcasts. That's the absolute best way you can help support the show right now. My favorite review this week is from username Logo17 that says this show came into his life at just the right time. Sometimes you may feel as if your hurdles in life make your path towards success and happiness impossible. This show will reverse those thoughts without a doubt. Please take a listen to this show and don't forget to hit subscribe. Melissa's incredible at what she does and I'm super thrilled to have found the show. Thank you so much. That review meant so much to me and it definitely put a smile on my face when I needed it. You can also find me on Instagram for some extra content throughout the week at Mind Love Podcast. And don't forget to sign up for the Morning Mind Love for short daily reminders of your own power every single day. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.